Heavenly Father, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit in power and might and that you might use us in spite of ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. As I was preparing uh, for this sermon this week, uh, I couldn't help but prepare it in light of the death of a dear friend and pastor to all of us here at the Advent, and that's Ed Salmon, the 13th Bishop of South Carolina, uh, who died last Wednesday. And he uh, had been invited here more than any other Lenten preacher that we've ever had. Uh, he preached uh, the institution of Paul Zoll, the institution of Frank Limehouse, and mine. And I told Louise this week, I said, well, he outlasted two of the deans in his ministry, and, uh, and that's uh, for sure. And he also officiated at my wedding to Lauren. Uh, <laughs> so he was just a remarkable man that had a ministry to us. When I first joined the staff, there were five clergy, and four out of the five of us had been ordained in South Carolina by Ed Salmon. Uh, in fact, when uh, Joe Warren retired, uh, some parishioner from the Advent who will go unnamed said something very foolish and said, you know, I just hope that you'll look somewhere else other than South Carolina. Uh, heaven forbid you get someone like us, right? Uh, but in light of Ed Salmon's death and looking at Luke chapter 10, and it just fits him to a T, but not only that, Bishop Salmon modeled a type of ministry uh, that has gone by the wayside in the church today. And it's a model uh, that Jesus gives us here in Luke chapter 10 when he sends out the 72. Jesus sends out the 72 in addition to the 12. These are not 12 plus uh, fifth, uh, 60 to get you to 72, but the original 12 disciples and 72 others that Jesus has commissioned to go out and preach that the kingdom of God is near and to heal the sick and to do all kinds of remarkable things. Ministry is not just for the chosen few. It's very easy to think, well, this kind of ministry that Jesus is talking about in John chapter 10, of going out and preaching the gospel, that's for the folks in the collars. Uh, that's for the chosen few. But the fact that he sent 72 out tells us that ministry, especially that kind of ministry, is for everybody. The call on the disciple to go and make disciples of all nations is upon you and me. Those of us who have been made a royal priesthood by virtue of God's saving mercy towards us. Now that doesn't mean that there aren't people who are called uh, to be a pastor, who are called to have a particular office uh, in the church. But Martin Luther said it this way, Pastors are primarily to be preachers. The message of the forgiveness of sins, not on account of merits, but on account of Christ, is to be repeated again and again in their sermons until everyone gets the point. Robert Smith at Beeson Divinity School, one of my favorite lines, he says, I preach so that you can preach. Jesus here is not only invested in the lives of the 12, but he's equipped and invested in the 72 so that they in turn can go out. Now, when I say the word pastor, what comes to mind? What do you think of when I say the word pastor? Well, we get it from the Latin word, which means shepherd. But what does it look to pastor or to shepherd a congregation in our day and age? 
Basically, the model that we have right now is a late 20th century model of one-on-one -on -one work. So when I say pastoring, many of you probably thought, well, that's when you visit so-and-so in the hospital. Or that's when you, I come to your office and tell you my deepest, darkest sin, uh, and then uh, you talk about how God has forgiven me for that. Uh, that's pastoral work in a way. Uh, but if you think about it in light of being a shepherd, a shepherd who shepherds one sheep is not much of a shepherd. Right? It would be a poor, pitiful excuse for a shepherd, although certainly the one that wanders off, the shepherd is willing to leave the 99 in order to pursue that one. Uh, but it might be better to speak of pastors as flockists. Because when we pastor, we're actually pastoring a flock. In fact, what I'm doing right now is pastoring you. I'm never more pastoral than I'm, when I'm standing here in this pulpit declaring to you the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. Pastoral work is more than just one-on-one -on -one work, even though that's very important. Pastors are called to shepherd a flock. Ed Salmon taught me this top to bottom. He understood his role as a bishop and the role of a diocese. He spent his ministry investing in pastors. He poured his life in pastoring the pastors of the diocese. And he recognized that the local church is where the real action happens. So when we talk about the diocese, we're not talking about an office where the bishop works. We're talking about the individual congregations that make up an entire diocese. That's the diocese. And so he made it a point to constantly invest money back into the parishes to help raise up youth ministers, to help support seminarians going off, uh, to help out whatever parish needed help. The diocese existed for the church, not the local church for the diocese. Bishop Salmon would always tell his clergy that their most important job was to love Jesus. Pastors, he would say, are not therapists, life coaches, or cheerleaders, but shepherds of Christ's flock pointing beyond themselves to Jesus himself. You notice that after Jesus has chosen these, he sends them out. In fact, the Greek, when it says that pray that God would send people out for the harvest, the Greek actually says force people out, to thrust them out, because you're not going to go unless God forces you to go. I know my own reluctant heart uh, to go and tell others. I know uh, the reluctance that I have to respond to God's call on my life, not just as a pastor, but as a Christian. But Jesus sends them out where? To places that he was going to go. They were to go as heralds, as message bearers, as ambassadors. And when Jesus comes to those places, will they know who he is? Has he been declared not just to the nations, but to our neighbors? He gives a wonderful promise in Luke 10 where he says, look, the harvest is ready. The hearts have already been converted. You just pick what I've already brought to fruition. I've done all the work. You simply reap the benefits of my labors. But as joyous and as wonderful as that commission is, is to go out into the right fields he gives a warning. 
He actually says something very funny. He says, go listen. Listen to what I'm about to say. He says, I send you out as lamb amongst the wolves. Not just sheep, but little lambs. No way to defend ourselves. And they take nothing for their journey. Nothing that would allow them to be dependent upon anything other than the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Anything apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. They were wholly dependent upon Him. When we were in Rwanda a couple weeks ago, uh, it was amazing to me to see the remarkable work of God in that place. Uh, you may be aware in 1994 that there was a tremendous genocide in Rwanda and they killed a million people in a hundred days. And if you ask them, how is it that your country 22 years later is the way that it is without batting an eye, they'll say it's because of Jesus Christ. And I ask them, how is it that you're so effective in ministry in this place? And one man said, because all we have is Jesus. And so Jesus sends us out, and although we might have all the resources that the world offers, the only resource that really matters is Him. Now the problem with wolves is that we expect them to look like wolves. You don't have to read your Bibles to understand this. Go watch Looney Tunes. Right? You've seen it. Wiley Coyote. What does he do? He puts on sheep's clothing in order to disguise himself so that he can get to the sheep. And in the same way, the wolves that we struggle with today don't look like wolves. They look like sheep. But how can you discern it then if just by looking at them they look sheepish? Jesus tells us in John chapter 10 that his sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him for they do not know the voice of strangers. If you want to determine if you're dealing with a wolf or a sheep, you listen to them. Do they speak with the voice of the good shepherd? Or do they speak with another voice? And so God has entrusted us not only to his son, Jesus Christ, but he has entrusted churches to their pastors. And a pastor is to care for the sheep that God has given him to love. Because that's what shepherds do. They care for their sheep. Uh, in the past four weekends, well, I'm here this morning, the weekend before I preached in New York City, the weekend before that I preached in Highlands, North Carolina, and the weekend before that I preached in Rwanda. And you have no idea how good it is to be back home. <laughs> Not just because of the travels, but as I look out, I know you. Those other congregations I was preaching to, those sheep belong to somebody else. I don't know their habits. I don't know their personalities. I, I don't know their names. And yet when I stand before you and I preach, I don't know if you ever feel, we're having a conversation. Right? I, I, can, I can tell when you don't like something, uh, but I can also tell when you do. Uh, but that's the nature of, of a shepherd to uh, his sheep. When the 72 are sent out, 
Jesus gives them practical instructions on bed and board. He says, eat what is placed before you. Now, that's a shocking thing for Jesus to say. Because where he's setting them in the Transjordan is a heavily Gentile populated area, which means more likely than not, they're going to have placed before them something that is not kosher, to say the least. And Jesus says, well, he says it in Mark 7, he said, the kingdom of heaven is not about eating and drinking, uh, but you're to eat whatever is placed in front of you. Why? Because when he says go into a town, he's asking them to actually go live with families. Don't go from house to house, but find a family that will take you in, that will feed you, that will provide a roof over your head, and that when the, whatever they give you, you should be grateful for, and you should practice hospitality. When Bishop Salmon would come uh, to Oxford, England to visit us when we were in seminary, for those of you that knew what he looked like, he walked with a pretty significant stoop and pigeon-toed, and he would walk the streets of Oxford, and whenever somebody would pass him by, he would raise his head and say, why, hello there, in his little Natchez accent. Uh, this caused such a problem once that the police actually stopped to question him. Someone had said, there's a bishop saying hello to everybody, and it totally disarmed them. But for the right reason. They were not used to anybody greeting them, to acknowledging them as a human being and their existence and place in this world with just a little word, hello. I see you. In the same way, when the disciples are being sent into people's homes, that changes the nature of our conversations radically. Because it's not just standing out on the street and preaching to people passing by. It's preaching to people and talking about Jesus with whom you have a relationship with around the dinner table. You're not just seeing someone as a spiritual statistic that needs to hear about Jesus, but a human being who struggles, who has joys, who needs to be acknowledged and told hello. And so in the same way, when we're called to be sent out, when we're sharing the gospel with people, ideally it's going to be in the context of relationships. Now, at this point, I could turn this sermon into our responsibility to go out and share the gospel. And if we don't, we are in disobedience to God's word. And that's true uh, to a point. But Ed Salmon helped me see the mistake that many of us make. We think that it's all about us. Before I was ordained, I was speaking with Bishop Salmon, and I was rattling off, rattling off a list of all of my strengths and abilities, uh, which would serve certain parishes in the diocese that happened to be resort communities on the coast. <laughs> and uh, after I finished, he uh, smiled and looked up at me, and he said, Well, Andrew, if that's what you want, then that's what you should have. It was not the first or the last time he said that to me, and when he said it, I stopped dead in my tracks, because all of a sudden, it gave me perspective. I understood exactly what he was saying. In the same way, not only is life not about you or me, the Bible is not about you or me either, or all about you or me. This passage doesn't say that Jesus' love for you is based upon your commitment to him. 
but in fact, his commitment to you. Sally Lloyd-Jones, who edited the Jesus Storybook Bible, which is a wonderful resource if you haven't gotten it for your little ones yet, said this recently in an article. She said, when I go into churches and speak to children, I ask them two questions. First, how many people here sometimes think that you have to be good for God to love you? They tentatively raise their hands, and I raise my hand along with them. And second, how many people here sometimes think that if you are not good, God will stop loving you? They look around and again raise their hands. These are children, she writes, in Sunday schools who know their Bible stories. These are children who probably also know all the right answers, and yet they have somehow missed the most important thing of all. They have missed what the Bible is all about. She continues, One Sunday not long ago, I was reading the story of Daniel and the scary sleepover from the Jesus Storybook Bible to some six-year-olds during a Sunday school lesson. One little girl in particular was sitting so close to me, she was almost in my lap. Her face was bright and eager as she listened to the story, utterly captivated. She could hardly keep on the ground and kept kneeling up to get closer to the story. At the end of the story, there were no other teachers around and I panicked and went into automatic pilot and heard myself to my horror, asking, and so children, what can we learn from Daniel about how God wants us to live? And as I said those words, it was as if I had literally laid a huge load on that little girl, like I broke some spell. She crumpled right in front of me, physically slumping and bowing her head. I will never forget it. It is a picture of what happens to a child when we turn a story into a moral lesson. Because the Bible is not all about us. It's all about God and his rescue of us. Luke chapter 10 is not a story that is about us and our willingness to go out. It is a story about how God works and in his mercy uses us to preach Jesus. It is all about God and his work, not ours. This is what made the life and ministry of Ed Salmon so remarkable. He got out of the way, and he trusted in Jesus to do what he promised to do. He proclaimed the gospel, the forgiveness of sins through the cross of Jesus Christ, and God's great love for sinners. And even after he retired as Bishop of South Carolina, he went on to be the dean and president of a theological seminary, and then the rector of a church, finally laying it down when cancer forced him to in his early 80s. Because you never actually retire from preaching the gospel. God forbid that we should ever tire of delivering to you of first importance, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. You see, when the disciples returned, they'd seen some amazing things, and they said, Jesus, even the demons were subject to us in your name. But what does Jesus say? Don't rejoice in that. Don't rejoice in what you've been used to accomplish. Don't be excited and worked up uh, over what you think that you might have had a role to play in. But above all things, you should be thankful that your name is in heaven, written in the blood of Jesus Christ, 
permanently, forever. My friends, this morning, God has given us a gracious call on our lives to go out and to preach his gospel. And yet know this, uh, the work is not ours, but it's his. And we give great thanks today for those who knew that, the Ed Salmons of this world and even those of us jars of clay who are called into the ministry, all of us, to carry within us that treasure, which is of God and not of us. Amen. Amen.